Hey, everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell. And I'm Dr. Neff. And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And thanks for listening. As autistic ADHD business owners, Patrick and I both understand the importance of promotion and doing it in a way that feels authentic and genuine. If you are a neurodivergent business owner and you would like to place your services or products in front of a neurodivergent audience, we are now opening up our podcast for sponsorships and we're providing a 10% discount code for neurodivergent business owners. So if you are an autistic or ADHD business owner, and you'd like to get in front of our audience, reach out to Divergent Conversations Podcast at gmail.com for more information. Hey, everyone, you are listening to another episode of the Divergent Conversations Podcast. And today we are continuing on our series of our neurotype interviews. And I'm really excited to have Jennifer Agee here today, who's an LCPC in Kansas City and a business coach and my business partner in retreat planning and a podcast host and all the things. Owns a group practice out in Kansas City as well. And today's part of the series is going to be neurotype, ask an holistic, uh, specifically a neurotypical. And Jennifer and I just spent 30 days traveling together in Europe. And we're going to talk about how that experience was vastly different for both of us. But Megan, um, wanted to have you kind of set the tone per usual and just kind of define terms and then we can get into it. And Jennifer, thanks for coming on. Thanks mm -hmm. for having me. Yeah. So there can be some confusion sometimes around neurotypical, holistic, all these terms. Um, so holistic is just a non-autistic person. So last week when we had Dr. Donna Henderson on, she was holistic because she's non-autistic. And then a neurotypical would be someone who doesn't identify with any form of neurodivergence. Um, so now we have Jennifer here, who is both allistic and more specifically a neurotypical allistic. Jennifer, what's the first thing we said to you when we got into this room about? I don't remember what you said, but I said, I, I don't know what is going to happen today, but I'm here for it. And you both laughed. <laughs> <laughs> that is just so like, I, I would never say that. Or I would never feel that. I wouldn't be saying if I was masking. I would never feel that. And I love that, that it's... So like you didn't totally know what was going to happen today, but you're just cool going with the flow. Absolutely. And and Patrick knows me well enough, especially even in traveling with me, that that's really me all the time. I really do feel that way. Um, if something happens, I'll pivot. No big deal. If um, a room's uncomfortable, I can be a little uncomfortable. And one of the things that was super apparent to me when we were traveling together is that we really do walk through the world in wildly different ways of how we experience it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I said to him uh, towards the end, I said, I just feel like you walk through the world as a raw, exposed nerve ending. And for me, I'm just flowing through the world. And it's very apparent in spending this time together that that's what's happening. Mm. I love that imagery of flowing through the world and raw nerve. Patrick actually brought that into a podcast, which is really interesting because I've used a similar metaphor to describe both my daughter and myself, like our nervous system being outside our bodies um, and the idea of flowing through the world. Gosh, 
I'm I'm experiencing a little bit of envy right now. That sounds really nice. I'm gonna give you a real life example of this because it just happened um, like an hour ago. I was talking to Jennifer. We have a retreat coming up in Portugal in October. And I said, I'm really concerned that the retreat host is like not very communicative. It takes about 10 days to respond. My mind goes to like, what are we going to do if this person just keeps our money? We have to refund 30 people. And she's like, no, we'll just pivot and figure it out. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I'm like, and we, and we would. <laughs> and we would. And here here's a part of why actually this combination of that of the way Patrick's brain works and my brain works is a good combination where I say, yeah, we'll just figure it out. Like we'll pivot, we'll make it awesome. It'll kick ass. It'll be great. And I know that his anxiety is going to be so freaking sky high around it that he will have contacted every person he knows in Portugal. He would have made contact somewhere. Like we would have pulled it out of our butt if we had to, but it's not, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. This is a good example, Megan, of like, what every day together in Europe was like for 30 days where I was like struggling so much. And I'd be like, okay, this is how I'm experiencing today. And Jen would be like, oh, I like opened my window and it felt like I was in a Disney movie and I was really excited to be here and I slept really well. And um, I talked to nine people across the street about, you know, various things. And I'm like, what the hell is happening here? This is so strange. It was a very good glimpse though. It was. I think both of us had a good glimpse into the real way that our behind the scenes work in traveling together, for sure. So I keep thinking, like my brain keeps going back to the big five. I don't know if either of you are familiar with the big five, sometimes called ocean. It's it's actually my favorite tool for understanding personality because it's non-pathologizing. But as I'm sitting here and listening to you talk, I'm like kind of seeing your big five in my mind. Like I imagine you'd be very high in openness and very high in extroversion. Have you taken the big five? Like, do you know? I haven't taken that assessment, but I am very high in openness and I am very high in extroversion for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there's, cause I'm also like, yes, you're holistic and neurotypical, but I'm also picking up some strong personality traits that would also factor into this. I'm just realizing how complex this conversation is because we're not just talking about neurotype, we're also talking about personality traits. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of nuance for sure. And I think that it's um, interesting to see how people move through the world. So, you know, the reason we want to highlight this experience, and I also did not do the disclaimer that we did last week, which I wanted to just use that disclaimer right now, that again, Megan and I know that interviewing one person does not speak for an entire population of people. So disclaimer now entered into the conversation. Um, Megan, specific questions like that come up for me when I'm thinking about spending time with neurotypical people, my first immediate thought is always small talk. Like that's where Mm -hmm. my mind goes of like our absolute like visceral physiological reaction to small talk. And Mm -hmm. then very often neurotypical conversation, which a lot of small talk is, is kind of, um, the foundation. So Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts around that, Megan? Oh, me? Wait. Yeah. Yeah, So I want you to just like expand upon that if you want to. This is what happened. Okay. We never knew when to talk over each other. So this is always that whenever we have a three person conversation, this is always like fighting the flow. Um, So I found a study once I want to, I can't refind it, which bugs me because I really would love the citation, but something about where neurotypical people, allistic people, 
get dopamine from small talk, which gave me so much more compassion because for me, um, it's a very stressful experience. I shut down, I low key dissociate to get through it, like no dopamine. Um, so uh, yeah, I would be curious to hear a little bit more, Jennifer, about your experience of small talk. Like, is it pleasurable to you? Is it like, what is your experience around small talk? Does it depend on who you're doing small talk with or what the topic is? What in your mind is the purpose of small talk? Like, I kind of get it, but like, why do y'all do this thing? <laughs> so for me, it could be positive, negative, or neutral. Right. Um, And the way I view small talk, let me make a disclaimer. I understand that as an extrovert, I kind of want to get to know everyone. And I at my base root, I do like most people. Genuinely, Mm -hmm. I think human beings are fascinating. I love spending time with them, all that thing. So I've just got to say that. And that might just be my personality. But I kind of look at small talk like going to a cocktail party and you have like cheese trays out and things and they have cheeses out that you've never seen before and you know how they cut them into those cute little cubes mm-hmm. right so you can have just one and you can see like do i like that one if so i'm going to go back and like load the plate or do i not necessarily like that one and for me small talk is kind of like those little bids to see do i want more mm-hmm. of you or less of you are you my people are you not my people do i want to um make a business connection here? Do I feel like you could end up being a friend that I have coffee with? Are you someone that I want to hang out with? Are you someone who, you know, those kinds of things. So mm-hmm. that's that for me is really a part of the purpose is I am sampling off the cheese tray, so to speak, to see what you're about, who you are, how you present in the world. Are you my people or not my people? And it doesn't cost my system if you're not my person or it's not an interesting conversation. And I think maybe that's a part of where the difference is. Mm-hmm. So for me, if I'm in a conversation that's not all that interesting, um, I've actually seen Patrick do there where you could see this look on his eyes where he gets that, I got a GTFO, you know, like look, and he's looking for the exit. Whereas I could just like enjoy whatever part of the conversation, find a, find an excuse to leave and like, just get out of it and it's fine. But I like sampling the cheese tray to always kind of get to know mm-hmm. people. I'm having, first of all, I love the cheese plate platter metaphor so much, but I just had an aha moment. You said, if it, you know, if it's not cheese for me, I can get out of the conversation. That reminds me of that fluid idea. For me, it would be very stressful. How do I get out of this conversation? How do I do it without offending them? There'd be an awkward, like, um, okay, well, I got to go. Bye. (laughs) It would, so the getting out part is harder for me. And I wonder if that's part of, part of why small talk is not as stressful as you can fluidly enter and leave small talk without it being like this big, okay, how do I get into it? How do I get out of it? When do I know when the other person wants out? When do I want out? I also heard like the compartmentalization ability to say like, is this, is this someone I want to have a business relationship with? Is this someone who falls into the coffee category that could become a friend? In my mind, like there is no ability to have that interpretation and analyzation in the moment where I'm literally exactly like Megan said, I am analyzing everything around me and picking up on everything around me and trying to figure out the least stressful way to get out of it. And honestly, it does look like this look that Jen is describing where I'm like, I have to get out of here and I may not do this in a non-abrasive way. Not that that it's my intention, but it certainly feels like this thing that has to immediately happen. 
and I, it becomes almost torturous to exist in the conversation the longer it goes on. And I don't have a good filter for like my face. My wife will often say like, Patrick, fix your face because it's just like, <laughs> it's, it's very obvious. So what's going through your minds when you're having to engage in small talk? Because you're both business professionals like I am, like we're in these spaces where it's kind of expected. So I kind of shared what's going on in my mind as that's happening. How do you guys see it? Like, what's that like for you? That's a great question. I've kind of curated a life where I actually don't do much small talk. Um, I've created a little island of work. And I've actually thought about that of like, it's kind of weird. I don't collaborate with more people. Um, Patrick's probably the, yeah, you're like the only, well, I've got one other person that I do some collaboration with, but, and they're both neurodivergent. Um, okay. But that's not your question. So I'm trying to think about the last time I did small talk. Um, it's, it's typically like, I am thinking about my face. I am thinking about like nodding. I am thinking about what is the point of this conversation. I'm, I'm maybe like rehearsing ahead of time what my next question will be. So I'm like listening for something to grab onto that they're saying that will like move the conversation forward. So there's not an awkward pause. Um, I'm typically not thinking about building connections because for me, as soon as if someone, if I was like, oh, this would be a good coffee person or a good business partner. As soon as I think that it becomes a demand and I want no more demands in my life. So I'm also like my social, so there's a scale on one of the like autism screeners and it's social motivation. My scale is very elevated, meaning I have very, very low social motivation. So there's also like Unless I'm having a really automatic connection like Patrick and I did when I was on his podcast, I'm not thinking about forwarding the connection. I'm thinking about how to exit. Yeah. And I think that's where these abrupt um, conversation disruptions come in sometimes. I also think I do a really good job of like camouflaging slash chameleoning. That's not a word. Uh, acting like a chameleon. Instead of Megan Anna, you just turned yeah. something into a verb. I like it. Claustrophobic is going to be the one because I still have people asking me about that. You made me boy. Google that word. <laughs> I've made a lot of people. That's going to be like a trending Google. I've made a lot of people Google that word. I, I do a good job of picking up on what people are interested in and being able to create conversation off of it. So I can remember being at a job where someone was wearing like a Duke basketball sweatshirt and I did not like spending time around this person but I knew that I needed to create conversation with them because of the sake of the workplace so my immediate conversation drifted at like oh duke like how how long have you liked them like wh what's really interesting to you about them because it allowed to create conversation that was not like how's your day going um what's what's the day look like how's the weather outside like oh man how was your sleep like questions that I don't care about to answer like yes or no questions in general. And so I've always been good at that, but it comes with a cost. And the thing that I think small talk does for me is Megan, you made a great point of like rehearsing already and like anticipating your answers. And that takes a lot of mental energy to then have to sit there and analyze and think about what am I going to say? How am I going to respond? And then often one masking in situations that like say I go out with my wife's friends who I don't know, I'm going to feel more uncomfortable despite being with my wife and I'm probably going to mask more because I'm going to be like, 
head nodding more and making more eye contact and and trying to stay engaged in the conversation. And if the conversation is of no interest of me to me, and I know that we're not going to become like friends or contacts, I want it over with. And sometimes in those scenarios, you can't get out of them. Like I, I have to sit and endure in that situation. And I think, um, Megan, I want you to speak to this too and your perspective, but I very quickly and intuitively pick up on who I'm going to connect with and who I'm not mm -hmm. going to connect with. Oh, and if yeah, I'm not so. going to connect, I have no interest in, yeah. in continuing. Yeah. And that's part of like, I pick up energy so fast. Oh, I want to ask you about that next gen first, like picking up energy that like within, yeah, probably five seconds. I know if I'm going to connect with someone and it's an energetic, like either it's there, it's not there. And I feel yeah. like it can also register how authentic is this person. Um, and if, if they're not authentic, I feel so psychologically unsafe in that interaction that I like, and I feel so like I get disoriented because I can tell there's an incongruency there. Like. I have a really strong reaction to that. Um, but I did just want to piggyback off something you said, Patrick. I totally did that too. I forgot it. But when I was in hospitals, until I could find like a shared context to connect with someone, um, I didn't know how to enter the conversation. So I was always doing that too of like, did we go to the same universities? I remember like the doctors I connected with best were ones that like we had gone to different, the same university, like out East. And once I could find a shared context, I could enter conversation. But outside of that, I've, I'd feel so disoriented, not knowing how to enter the conversation. So that was just interesting. Um, yes, Jennifer, picking up other people's energy. Is that something you experience? Absolutely. But I, again, I don't think it costs my system if they're not my people. I just recategorize them in my brain and continue on in the conversation with them mm -hmm. in that new category. So the That's other thing is it's information for me to then I'm making decisions as to what level of investment I'm going to have. I will say yeah. though, a part of my personality, and I don't think this is necessarily neurotypical, but I do think it's more part of my personality. I am way more likely to give people um, more chances I'm way more mm -hmm. likely to see a thousand different areas of gray as to how someone might have a, arrived at a conclusion or made a statement mm -hmm. or things like that. And so I know that even in Patrick and I's interaction, because he does pick up on patterns and things that I don't pick up on as quickly, I'm more likely to maybe stick in something a little bit longer than he would because mm -hmm. he's his system has already very immediately made a decision, whereas mm -hmm. mine might have made an initial decision and then I test the theory. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. But I, yeah, I definitely pick up on on people's energies in the room and that but then I just recategorize them and move on. Uh -huh. So when you talk about picking up energy and then recategorizing, like, is it infecting you? Like, is it does it become your energy or is it a like like a signal like, OK, that's that person has a high tempo. That person has a low tempo. I think um, that has changed as I've gotten older and I know myself better because I I am very intentional about protecting my energy in a way that I didn't know to be when I was younger. And I think that's true with most of us as you know each other better, you know how to, to show up in spaces. But I can think of a specific example with um, another leader in our community who always talked about our friendship. And I did think there was a base of friendship there. I didn't think we were friend friends, but we were kind of like on that road to friendship for sure. 
Um, I met them and spent time with them in, in person. And within the first three minutes, it was very clear I was a business transaction to this person. I was not an actual mm -hmm. friend to this person. I felt it immediately. I saw all the mm -hmm. nonverbals, whatever. And so although I felt dis some di level of disappointment because I thought it was it was really going to be mm -hmm. one thing, my brain immediately recategorized this person as this is a transactional relationship. So anything that they did moving forward, I always just saw it at, in a lens of we're both getting something out of this, not that it's friendship, mm -hmm. but we are both finding ways to use each other's skill set to benefit our businesses in some way. And so I didn't harbor as much ill will or resentment, whereas I know other people have had interactions similar mm -hmm. and have walked away with a very different experience. Yeah, that because I think for me, like I'd feel... Um like kind of clickbait, like, but with a person and I'd feel, uh, betrayal is too strong of a word, but like, I really have a sensitivity to feeling manipulated because I'd way rather someone be like, Hey, I'm interested in a business collaboration. Let's go. But if someone is like manipulating to get to that, like yet for me, that would be a pretty quick cutoff. Whereas I, I hear the psychological flexibility in your mind. You're like, no, let me just, I'll put them in a different bucket, move forward, fluid. We'll move through the world fluidly. Mm -hmm. And if that person was not able to benefit my business in some way, transactionally, mm -hmm. I would have then just kind of yeah. completely yeah. put them to the side and I wouldn't have had a, a problem with that. Um, but yeah, there is that flexibility where, again, I think this goes to, I do flow fairly easily um, mm -hmm. in the world and in my relationships. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to backtrack something I just said. I actually don't know that I would cut them off. I would explicitly ask them. I would say, okay, I'm confused. It seemed like you were pursuing a friendship, but now it seems like this is what you're pursuing. What are we doing here? And actually, I now I just don't really respond to people in my DMs, but when people used to slide into my DMs, always a sexual connotation. <laughs> I don't know what I mean. I think it's the, the right connotation, yeah. Okay, people would slide into it. Yeah, my kids are going to like... Hey, they always make fun of me when I try to use like Gen Z language mm -hmm. uh, and want to set up a meeting. I would explicitly ask, like, what is your intention here? And and I'll still do that. I'll be like, when people want to meet, I'll be like, give me a bullet list of your intentions. And then I might consider giving you my time. That, that makes sense, though, in a lot of ways. And like whether I do think that is certainly much more of a neurodivergent trait. But it makes sense when you get bigger and busy, bigger, like you're a medium sized influencer at this point in time, you have over 100,000 followers on a social media channel, like, you have to be intentional about how you kind of structure your responses. But I agree with you, Megan, like, I want to know the intentionality immediately. And what I'm getting a lot of and I fucking hate it. Uh, sorry, for cursing world, I'm doing better. <laughs> Is someone will like DM me. You don't need a mask here, remember? Someone will DM me and then they'll say like, they'll immediately send a compliment out, but then immediately mm -hmm. follow up with an ask. So yep. in my mind, that feels very inauthentic. That feels very disingenuous. That feels like you're just sending this compliment out so then you can ask your request. Mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. respond to those anymore. And I used to respond to all of them. And I just realized like, I can't, I don't have the energy or capacity but I like Look at the progress, Patrick. I'm I so know. Pleased. Jen makes fun of me because she's like, Patrick picks up every phone call that comes. Every, every like, phone call. He would be my call. first call if I was in jail because I you, know he would pick up. Yes, absolutely. I don't do you, that anymore, though. And I, I think I, you'd send me bail money, too. So you'd yeah. definitely be on my call list. I, I screen more calls than I was screening. But like 
I like what you're saying, Megan, about like, give me exactly what you're asking for me, because I think that's really important for us in terms of like no longer masking and no longer trying to always have neurotypical relationships. So just Mm -hmm. being like, just ask me for what you're asking without like all Mm -hmm. the additional layers and all the additional like fluff that comes Mm -hmm. with some of the conversation. And then I can make a much more informed decision energy wise and also like intentionality wise. I think that's important. And something you said before that stood out to me, Megan, is like the ability intuitively to pick up on energy that feels incongruent or out of alignment or I can pick up on artificiality like that. And as Mm -hmm. soon as I pick up on it, I'm not having this relationship. It's going to get cut off. And I think that's a big difference in what you're saying, Jen, is like the ability to flow through the world and categorize in the moment. My ability is like black, white, like you're either going into the pile of people that I don't care about, or I'm going to (laughs) really, really like you. And I'm going to really like show up for you. So there is no middle ground for me in terms of socializing. That's actually one of the things I love the most because um, like I'm the only neurotypical in my family. Right. And so one See, of the I things I was going to ask you, like if you had any connections to neurodivergence, so you're the only neurotypical in your family. Correct. Yeah. Wow. And so I like have your a- parent to neurodivergent kids. Yeah. To my my husband, um, my two children, um, two of my grandchildren have already have diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things I I guess I, I totally lost my thought, but um, I'm sorry, I interrupted your flow. You're totally fine. Um, yeah, I do just flow differently in the world. And I think ha- being in a household. Ooh, I got it back. OK, so I'm reining it in. OK, here we go. So what I love about the neurodivergence in my life is exactly what Patrick said. If I am someone that they love, they like really love me. I am Mm -hmm. super in. They invest in me time, energy, and mutually we do that. Whereas with neurotypicals, I think because we're more used to flowing in and out of each other's lives Mm -hmm. based on all sorts of different uh, things, including seasons, um, Everyone in my life who is a neurotypical, who I'm genuinely friends with, they're a real friend. And I know that I I see that not as a privilege, because that's I'm not I'm not inflating anybody's head, especially one on this podcast. But I do think that I I honor that I know that I'm I'm in a space that not everyone gets to go to in their life. Whereas a lot of people get that space with me. They're not in my inner circle, but a lot of people get access to me in a in a different way. Mm-hmm. That's a really important point. Mm-hmm. I think Jen pointed that out to me. Megan, like while we were traveling, I was thinking about like how many people want access to me. And she made a good point. She's like, because you don't give them access. Like you you shut mm-hmm. them out. So people want to have more closeness and connection. And in the business world, that's a really strange feeling because it means that people are going to like try to manipulate you sometimes to have mm-hmm. more contact with you. And that's something that I really, really struggle with as someone who has to be around a lot of people a lot of the time for the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm having kind of a realization as well as we're talking, Patrick, of like you and I are both in positions because of our like platforms and business where people want access to us. So we have the privilege of being like, give me a bullet list of what you want to talk about. If right. someone... Right. There's a lot of autistic people who are experiencing an inverse. Like I'm very aware of my social motivation is, is 
so elevated to where like, I don't want more people in my life, but there's plenty of people who are having the opposite experience of like, I'm really trying to build community and I can't get people a bullet list of what do you want to talk about? Because I don't, it's not like I've got a hundred people sliding into my DMS. For sure. That's a good point. I mean, what do we hear a lot of from specifically our autistic listeners and followers is like loneliness, right? Are you trying to revamp the camera? Yeah. (laughs) I bought Megan the camera that I have and it tracks your motion. So it's not always uh, in alignment. (laughs) But what we hear a lot of is like um, loneliness, loneliness and disconnection and the desire to have community and where can I get more, more community in general. So it's really hard then to say no to requests, say no to demands, um, have boundaries with energy and time and and sensory overwhelm because there's such a desire for connection and i think that is a really good point megan that it definitely is a privilege to be able to say like not going to respond to this or i don't feel like mm-hmm. paying attention to the 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 messages or the emails or, or i'm going to put boundaries around how i'm going to engage with you yeah. yeah yeah like your email response is pretty perfect about that your automatic response that you have built in. Oh, right. You've seen that now. Yeah. See, yeah. <laughs> building boundaries. Building boundaries. That's right. Um, yeah. Really, really good point. How about we diverge to another set of questions? So last week when Donna was on, we were asking about context, Megan, and like context mm-hmm. clues. And what was the example you gave in terms of context clues? Something about um, like a neighbor conversation? Yeah. Remember. So it was like, like, if someone asked, what's your favorite book? And mm. Donna was saying how it would depend who was asking. Like for me, I'd be, I'd be like sifting through trying to figure out like, like it would be so hard because I don't like, what does the person mean? My favorite book, what genre? Um, so first of all, I just like, can't answer that question. It's too context dependent. But what Donna said, which just kind of blew my mind was like, well, if my neighbor asked, I would say this book. If a colleague asked, I would say this book because I know that like that's kind of what they're asking. And then what do- what Dr. Henderson was saying is how those context cues are all um, interpreted subcortically, so like outside of our you know prefrontal cortex, all of the labor that goes into that. I feel like I heard some of that when you were talking about small talk as well, like how quickly you're picking things up and then putting them into buckets of this is a business connection, this is a friendship connection. Mm-hmm. I I think you're absolutely right. And and I do the exact same thing. If somebody asks me, what book are you reading? It depends on who they, who they are and what context I'm seeing them. And I immediately know which category I need to go to and which ones I definitely don't tell them that I'm also reading either. <laughs> I've heard too much of those. Oh, so you also know like what filter to apply. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, Wow. And it's, and again, it's, this is not like an analytical process. It's intuitive to you. It's very intuitive. I don't think about it. And again, this goes back to things that I notice spending this much time with Patrick is I see that he has to think about it. I Mm -hmm. see that he is intentionally filtering things that, Mm -hmm. that I am not intentionally having to filter. Sounds so nice. (laughs) I just got like weirdly emotional on that. I don't know why, (laughs) but yeah, I think it's exhausting. Megan and I have talked about how exhausting it is to have to constantly like try and prune information and categorize it and place it where it needs to go. And that's probably why like 
<clears throat> sorry that's probably why like a lot of the times have i have this look on my face where i'm like mm. it maybe feels vacant or blank but it's really just like really inside my head trying to figure out the scenario mm. or or how to categorize or compartmentalize or or answer specific questions so it's really interesting like i wonder i really wish that it would be completely intuitive where it was just like oh i know exactly how to respond to this without having to think about how i'm going to respond to this mm. sounds nice <laughs> i don't know any other way so i can you know our brains are our brains and they just work the way they work i suppose but you know th another part of this conversation and if you don't want to go into this category we don't have to but because Patrick is my friend, I have talked to him before about um, sometimes the different costs to our system just in relationship, like with partners and and closer closer friendships and relationships. And, and in part because I know that it's harder on my spouse's system to do some of the things than it is mine, I find that I very often will default to the highest sensory needs person in the room. So because mm -hmm. I know it will not cost my system as much, no matter what we do, really. If I know that if we choose X restaurant, that it's really noisy or it's this or it's that, and it's going to uh, mm -hmm. probably be uncomfortable for them, even though I might really want to go there, I, I I won't even bring it up. Like I, mm -hmm. I, I make a thousand tiny internal pivots too to try to make space mm -hmm. comfortable for the people that I love and care about. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I, I love that. Um, when I, when I work with parents who aren't neurodivergent themselves, that's something I'm often like encouraging, like, cause they'll be like, why does my kid not want to go to the restaurant with us? It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's think about this through a sensory lens. So first of all, I just love that you are doing that, that you're thinking through a, what I would call a sensory lens. But two, the other thing that's interesting that I, I think I hear your analytical brain, right? Like for me, that's, that's intuitive. Oh, I don't want to go to that restaurant. But here it's, and this is that double empathy problem. You have to analytically think through, okay, is that a high sensory restaurant? What is my spouse's experience going to be about that? And that, I think that is at the part of the double empathy, which is but when we're in a cross neurotype interaction, we're just not going to intuitively understand the other. So you, but you're doing the labor, you're doing the prefrontal cortex labor of thinking through what would this experience be like for the other person? Yeah. And uh, a full disclosure, I've been with my husband for 30 years. So mm -hmm. I can tell the way his eye slightly moves a lot of times what is, you know, how how that's affecting his system, whether he says it mm -hmm. or not, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, proximity is helpful, right? The, the longer you're with someone, the more you know how to pick up on their nonverbals um, mm -hmm. and and can adapt. And I think we all do that for people we love, right? So mm -hmm. I'm sure you both have put yourself in situations that you don't necessarily really want to be in, um, but you know that your partner would really enjoy it or it's important to them or, you know, going out to a happy hour with coworkers you don't know or whatever. Like that's not how you want to spend that day, but you love your partner and you, mm -hmm. you make accommodations for it. And I think, you know, we just do that. But I have noticed that um, I'm more aware of the fact that I'm doing it. And I think it's because I'm getting older and I'm asking myself the questions like, uh, how much am I doing that I want to do or how much am I doing that is accommodating other people kind kinds of questions. But I've been more aware of it. And, uh, you know, I've kind of come to the conclusion that 
I really don't mind. Like, because yeah. um, I've asked, like, do I feel resentful about that? Should this piss me off, tick me off? You know, and when I thought about it, it doesn't because when my partner is happiness flowing through the world in a better way, that helps me in our home and in our life flow better too. Yeah. Right. Like you're going to get a more present version of your husband at a lower sensory restaurant, which, so if you're thinking about the quality of the dinner, it's like, okay, I could go here and maybe get the food I want, but I'd have a dissociated husband or a like, or depending on if he goes up or down. Um, so I love how you think through like the, the nuance of that. And this, I think this is so important for neurodiverse couples is I, I love Esther Perel's work in general with couples, but one thing she talks a lot about with couples work is like the importance of not always looking to our partners to get our needs met. And I think especially for the neurotypical spouse, when there's a neurotypical spouse, like take yourself to the restaurant, go there with a friend, like make sure you're getting that need met of like, I love this restaurant and it's a high sensory restaurant. And I think what when I see neurodiverse couples get stuck a lot is they're not giving themselves permission to meet their needs outside of the dyad. And then there's that resentment builds up. Absolutely. That's mm-hmm. a great point. And that's the, you know, I'm very thankful that my wife is very intuitive about that and, and also analyzes the cost because she knows mm-hmm. that if we go somewhere where I'm just very uncomfortable, it's not going to be an enjoyable experience and mm-hmm. it's not my intention, but, um, she also knows like there are like six restaurants in town that I will go to consistently. So if she really wants to have a date night, she's like, do you want to go to one of these six places? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Like, that's okay. Um, do you want to try this new place? That's really loud or, you know, really crowded or really busy. And I'm like, uh, not mm-hmm. really. No, I don't want to do that. And Megan, you and I have talked about like family obligations and familial obligations and the cost that comes with saying yes, sometimes to going right. Like, my wife's family and my in-laws are big, loud family and they're wonderful, but it's, it's overwhelming. And the cost that comes with that is something where I will have to kind of give myself months of time to mentally prepare to say like, okay, we're going to go on Christmas Eve and I'm going to like sit in this room for six hours. And like, I know what the, what that means mm-hmm. in the long run. And mm-hmm. I, I just think that is, is an interesting way to per, put that in perspective yeah. too. Yeah. The other thing, and this, I like, I'm feeling the controversy in my chest before I say this. Um, so I want to give it some context, but, you know, after my diagnosis and Patrick, we've talked about this on this podcast, like I, there were aspects of being autistic. I needed to grieve, like the limits I have. I, the, I think my biggest grief is around my sensory limits. Cause it really, I have such a hard time being present anywhere in the world outside of nature in my house, because I'm just. I, I'm shut down. My nervous system shut down. Um, but I've encouraged my spouse, like you get to grieve this too. And that that's tricky for him. That's not intuitive, but like he, the other day, a, um, a concert came up and he was like, you know what? I had a moment of like, it'd be nice if, you know, Megan Anna would want to go to something like that with me. That's, and I, and I, I'm encouraging him of like, you get to grieve that you don't have a spouse who can enjoy concerts with you. Like, so I, I, I think that's a tricky line, but I, I think it is important if, especially if this is a later in life discovery for both partners to process and grieve elements of what it means to be in a neurodiverse. And, and likewise, like there might be elements where I grieve 
that my spouse doesn't intuitively get me in the same way that neurodivergent people do. I love that you guys are having this conversation. I really do, because I, I just think of how many people that have been in my office over the years where there's an undercurrent of all of this going on, but in people's politeness or not wanting to hurt their partner's feelings, they don't also own the parts of them that are true that that may not feel great to say out loud. And mm -hmm. I think healthy relationships give space for both partners to feel those feelings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's important in any couple, but especially in a neurodiverse couple where we're, we are working on that across neurotype double empathy issue of like, we have got to create space for there to be complex emotions and for us to hold space for our partners to have complex emotions. That's definitely an episode in the making, I think, just having um, conversations around neurodiverse couples and partnerships and communication styles, because that's what comes up a lot is missed attunement and communication mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and interpretation of communication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is going to be a huge episode. Y'all don't even know. Buckle up. It is going to be big. <laughs> one of the things I want to compliment you guys, one of the things I really enjoy about your conversations is that you very clearly and articulate, articulate the felt experience of being an autistic person walking through the world where just like you're asking me questions as, you know, ask the neurotypical day, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Um, it gives me a peek behind the curtain mm -hmm. too, to what's actually happening in your system. And so I just really appre appreciate and value what you guys are doing. I want you to know that. Thank you. I'm going to like, not to totally deflect, but I'm going to deflect. Um, I, first of all, like those words mean a lot, but I also noticed myself retreating with a compliment coming in. How do you experience compliments as a allistic neurotypical? I, I think for me, how I experience compliments has changed as I've healed my own childhood crap. So, you know, when I was younger, it was definitely not something that I accepted or received. And now when somebody says something nice, I just say, thank you. Or I hear all, you know, a lot of times, oh my word, your life looks freaking amazing. Look at all the things you're doing. You know, um, I just wish I could, you know, have a life like that. And I'll just say, thank you. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. And so I can receive it now, but that was not easier when I was younger. And I think that just had more to do with childhood junk than yeah. anything else. Yeah, yeah. But I'll make my husband stay in there and take it sometimes. I'll just be like, I'll warn him. I'll say, I'm about to say something nice and you just <laughs> need to take it. That's exactly what I say. I love that. One, I can see that being true because that's kind of how our relationship goes sometimes. And yeah. two, I I could see you retreating, Megan. Like I saw your body. Even though this. like I, I loved I loved those words and they they genuinely mean a lot. I also I think it's the positive emotion. And again, this is on the big five. There's a whole facet positive emotion. It's often low for autistic people, but it's um it's both like how much we generate positive emotion, but also how we experience it coming toward us. And for me, it, it can mean a lot, but positive emotion coming toward me, it feels like a sensory demand. I don't know how else to say it. Um, which like is because sad. there's a tit or tat, like, or uh, like a give and take, like, because I'm saying something nice to you. Now there's an internal uh -huh, expectation. Uh -huh. Something's supposed to come back. That's part of it. So part of it is energetic, just uh -huh. like, but then part of it is I'm supposed to have a nice response to this. 
And I, I, I just typically have an awkward response to compliments. So there, there's also, yeah, I guess the social demand around, and now how do I take this in and then respond to it? And then it, and it's also the like, okay, like teenage, it brings me back to like middle school and high school. Like someone compliments your shirt, then you compliment their shoes. Like this exchange. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, you're tapping into something that's completely accurate, which is there's a ton of nuance around relationships, which is where I think, um, you know, the two of you would just prefer to cut the bowl and get right to the meat and potatoes. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm from the Midwest as well. So like, there is a ton of politeness that goes around conversations. I grew up in the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. So coming directly at someone with like, Hey, saw you messaged me. Tell me what you want, what you really, really want. And then like, we'll get out of here. So <laughs> I love the Spice Girl reference just there, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, random brain. But anyway, so if, if someone came at me that way, I'd be like, well, okay, then Mr. So-and-so, you know, but uh, your boss. I know enough now to be like, they're just being direct because they need me mm-hmm. to cut to the chase, but they're I will tell you that is a more recent development and you will be on my suspicious list as to whether or not you go in an in category, uh, transactional cat. Like I'm already starting to make categorizations based on that directness. Now I will tell you the first time I met Patrick and I had already hired him to talk at my first retreat. Mm-hmm. I told my husband, I said, I don't even know if I should go up and say hello to him based on the look on oh. his face. Like I don't, I'm like, I don't think this dude likes me at all anyway. And so <laughs> Because his not well, it's the truth. You tell stories about me, I'm gonna tell them about you. Anyway, so uh, just the the way his you know his presentation mm-hmm. and all this stuff is. As soon as he was diagnosed, it was like my brain recategorized every interaction mm-hmm. we had, and I was like, oh, mm-hmm. and I didn't feel mm-hmm. some type of way about them anymore because I understood yeah. Yeah. that was just yeah. him being genuine in that moment. Yeah. His face didn't want to make a fake smile face, which my good Midwestern parts were like, put a fake ass smile on. I'm here. Come on. You know, (laughs) so and he didn't want to and he didn't. But now that I know that I'm like, okay, he was being genuine in that moment. And my brain recategorized that. And and this is one of the benefits, potential benefits of relational self-disclosure is then we have an accurate narrative to like encode those interactions. I, yeah. I got this a lot through my life too. I think Patrick, you, you have too, probably a lot of autistic people of like, um, you seem um, distant, aloof, like hard to get to know, um, disinterested. Whereas like, I might be the person in the crowd, like trying to find someone to make talk with so that I don't awkwardly stand in the corner. But most people are reading me and have read me as um, disinterested. So I think it's so helpful then when there's this narrative of like, oh, okay, I understand this interaction. I can categorize it differently now. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. That's so spot on. I think those those adjectives or description words would be the ones that people would use for me most often. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I'm connected with people, I'm really connected with them. Like I can talk and be very social and um, very engaging, but it's yeah, those would be the words that I think come to the forefront for most people. And I think a diagnosis helps, like you both said, recategorize in a way, or at least re- or reshape a perspective, which I think is important to, if you're open to reshaping, the, reframing the perspective, right? Because people can also interpret it, the diagnosis as like, so what? Like you're still acting mm-hmm. this sort of way. Um, 
I'm from New York. Like, even if I wasn't autistic, I think there's still a level of directness of being from the Northeast where like that is how people communicate. And then moving to the South where people are like, bless your heart. And like, we got to put all of this fluff into all of the conversations. And I'm like, what is happening here? I don't understand it. So it's, that's very interesting, you know, in general, but I, I agree that, those are the words that people would describe me with in terms of like getting to know me socially. And I think that's strange when I am the face of a business where we're hosting people all over the world. And if the perception is like Patrick is unapproachable and distant and really mean, that just doesn't feel great for my brand. But it doesn't seem like that is the case. It just seems like people want to get to know me more because of how distant I present, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've told you to a thousand times it is a part of the key to your success because the the um I want to be liked parts of us freaking love a good aloof person because we're like, why don't they like us? Maybe we mm -hmm. can. I mean, like, so all those parts kick in for us too. I think when we see that, we go into all of those spaces within ourselves, And yeah, I think it's been a part of your success to be quite honest. I, I think that. it's part of why my spouse married me was because I was like the aloof and in college. Right. So like that plays really differently, like being an autistic girl who was a, like hard to get to know, like in the dating world, that kind of works actually. Um, I could see that. Can we mm -hmm. talk about dating real quick? Because this is something we did not talk about last week. And that is something I just want to check our time too. Do you have your your meeting? Now? I I don't, but I don't know if you all have anything. I also have a couple more questions I want to. Okay, cool. Ask. Yeah, I really enjoyed like this conversation. Twenty ish more minutes. So oh, I, I built a Do, buffer. Are you okay, Jennifer? For time, I'm good. Last week I didn't have the same buffer, but so dating, right? You just made a good point, Megan. We've never talked about dating on this podcast as neurodivergent people. Mm -hmm. I struggle so much to pick up on social cues. I think I'm better at it now. But during that span of my life, it was really hard. And like, if people were interested in me, I definitely did not know. So if someone came over and just talked to me randomly, or like, put their hand on my leg, or like, gave me a certain look, I would just not really be able to absorb that or take that in or make sense of that. I definitely had a lot of those interactions where someone was definitely hitting on me. And I was probably like, oh, did you need like directions somewhere? Or like, do you need recommendations for a restaurant? And then just like got up and walked away. And <laughs> my wife is like, you definitely missed out on a lot of relationships because the first date, I didn't know she wanted to kiss me. I didn't know. She said I gave her like an awkward side hug, like <laughs> goodbye. I probably like ran the hell out of there. I was like, I gotta go. <laughs> anyway, um, Jennifer and Megan, how do you experience that? and picking up in social cues. Jennifer, I'll let you go first. I mean, I picked up on it just fine. And then if, look, I think if you're cute enough and you like the person enough, any stupid line will work is kind of my theory. So um, I, I never had a problem with it. And then based on the cues, I would again 
immediately categorize in my mind, do I see this person as a potential anything? And if the answer is no, I would politely, you know, ha, 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 and exit the conversation. Um, and if I thought they were potential, I would lean into it. But I was able to tell and really intentionally make a decision if I was going to navigate that interaction one direction or another. I'm thinking of a situation right now that while I was in Charlotte before I moved to North Carolina with some friends and the friend of their friend, and she kept putting her leg on my legs while we were sitting at a restaurant. And I kept moving and being like, oh, my God, you must need space. Like You, you, you clearly don't have enough space in this booth. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, you misread that one. <laughs> misread that one. Definitely. I hear that a lot, Patrick. That's that's not been my experience, but I hear that a lot from autistic people, especially more so, I think, uh, cishet men, like just totally missing. And it might be, I wonder if it's, again, in, talking like in kind of heteronormative spaces, I wonder if if many girls are more subtle in their because like we live in this patriarchal culture where it's typically like the um the man is supposed to initiate so i like i yeah i didn't really relate to that i also my dating experience happened in this really weird bubble of evangelicalism and so my dating experience was more like i'd get into a really deep kind of philosophical existential conversation with someone we'd end up talking late into the night like it would become pretty clear um and it would start with kind of a emotional intellectual connection typically um but i do think so i do think that, that i have had like i think i interpret all banter as flirting so i do think i have difficulty and in the workplace this has confused me when i've had male supervisors banter with me um of it feels flirtatious but then i'm like confused by that so i've definitely had that experience actually where but it's more everything feels flirtatious versus nothing feels flirtatious. It's very interesting. I think, I definitely think we have episodes to do off of some of these conversations because it's just interesting to hear these different perspectives and how we interpret and move through the world. So Megan, Brains you are fascinating. Mm. They really are. Um, Jennifer, well, this is a strong pivot. I don't know if we're done. See, not fluid. Have to explicitly ask. <laughs> this actually feels more fluid than last week, so I'm pivot away. Oh, I'm just saying I'm not fluid, so I'm uh, like having to explicitly ask, are we done with that conversation? Can I? Yeah. Can we um, transition? Yeah. Sensory. We haven't talked about that. So I know we talked about small talk. We talked about context cues. Um, what's your sensory experience of the world? I literally don't think about it. That, I, I was actually guessing that might be what you say of just like, because it's like, like a fish in water, not experiencing water. Mm -hmm. uh, that's so interesting. So it's yeah. just, it's an, a non, like you'd have to think about it to think about what your sensory experience is. Exactly. Now it's 105 degrees. So if I go outside, I'm going to have a sensory experience of being hot and uncomfortable. I mean, I'm still, mm -hmm. you know, it's just yeah. being a human in the world. Right. But in general, I don't filter or anticipate anything in terms of thinking about my sensory needs at all. Because, be, oh, this is gonna, I hope that doesn't make me sound bad, but the truth is I know my system's got it. Yeah. So yeah. if I walk into a situation, I know that my system will pivot or adjust in whatever way it needs yeah. to, to mm -hmm. be okay. So 
I just really don't think yeah. about it. Yeah, that, that doesn't sound bad. That's like literally one of the core differences is um, something I talk a lot about is how neurodivergent people have like a ice thin window of like window of tolerance because we can't take in incoming stressors and our body adapt as easily. Same thing with sensory. You're saying your system can take in new input and adapt and be okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is like precisely one of the huge differences between allistic and autistic systems. Yeah. I'm thinking about like the one degree temperature difference that I sometimes need to make me feel more comfortable in my house. And if my wife uses the air fryer, how I can't sleep at night because I can smell the smell of like the air fryer all night and I'm so uncomfortable and how I so often default to certain clothing items because of comfort. Mm -hmm. And it's just amazing how much energy and intention has to go into like sensory soothing and really having to be really aware and vigilant about it pretty constantly mm -hmm. in order to be comfortable. So this is a great example, actually, you mentioning the temperature uh, of how my system, I will just kind of tick a lock and uh, just get on with it. So when we traveled, we would often stay in Airbnbs because we packed it basically in a backpack for a month, you know, um, and we always had to do laundry. He likes it like a freaking icebox. I mean, I mean, it was a meat locker in there. I keep my house at 77 degrees. <laughs> yeah, and I feel amazing. All right. So at night, we would get in. We'd both kick our shoes off at the door and go to separate rooms. And he would have it set to icebox temperature. And I literally slept with my head under the covers almost every night because I was freaking freezing. But... I knew I could wake up and be like, all right, let's go to coffee. You know, it's going to be a good day. And if if that affected his sleep, if that affected, you know, all of these things, my I was thinking of of those things, too. I know you made accommodations for me, too, but I, I'm just talking specifically about the being physically comfortable in a space. Um, I was just like, it's not worth it because it's going to cost him sleep, which mm -hmm. is going to cost him a lot, lot more the next day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 77 degrees sounds miserable, first of all. That's what my dad keeps his house at in Florida. When I go down there, I'm like, going to an Airbnb, I can't do this. Um, but too, I appreciate that. So that's good. That's a great example of friendships th throughout different neurotypes and, and being intentional about the things that we know are going to impact the other. And I knew you did that while we were there. Like, I knew you were definitely like, Jen is a verbal processor. And I had to tell Jen, like, if you're going to say all of these things to me every day, I'm going to take them literally. So if you need me to do something now, then tell me. But if you are just processing your thoughts, please like give me context that that's what's happening. Otherwise, the conversation of like, okay, we need to do this. We need to do this. We need to do, do this. And I'm like, fuck, what, are we doing that right now? Like what's happening? So that was very helpful. And also like, I know Jen wants to talk in the morning and I am not a morning person. And every morning that we went and got coffee, she'd be like holding it in and I could see it in her face where I like, I wasn't even talking. I was just like pointing directions sometimes because I was like so yeah. tired or like out of it. And I, I just want to say that I appreciate that. So it was helpful. Back at you. <laughs> Thanks for not getting, letting me get run over because he did pull me in a few times when I was distracted by the beauty of the world. <laughs> I just want to say, like, I love kind of you're all denied. De oh my gosh, words. Do, do words stop for me after an hour? Is that what's happening? <laughs> I love your dynamic and I love getting this kind of this inside perspective on Patrick 
of, and I just, I really appreciate seeing your dynamic. I think it's a really wonderful model of what a good cross neurotype friendship. Like I wanted to say business, but it, it, it feels and sounds more like a friendship when y'all talk. It's a friendship that turned into business for sure. Mm-hmm. And it Definitely. all started with both of us not liking the other person based on certain stereotypes. What, based on the double empathy problem? Was it because of assumptions you were making about each other? Yes. Yeah, Patrick. Talk about what I was assuming on air because it sounds unbelievably discriminatory. Um, persons yeah, from the Patrick. Midwest, they're having their first retreat in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I assume this person is just a terrible human being. I don't want to associate with this person. Why did I say yes to speak at this event? All the things that are going through my head. And then uh, we met in Hawaii at a conference and like then we spent the next five days together, her and her husband and me and some other friends. And the rest is history, but that was definitely my initial impression, which unfortunately is very often my initial impression is like, I'm already assuming I'm not going to like the person and I really have to experience them to then change my opinion or perspective. Mm -hmm. I don't go into a lot of social situations assuming the best, I should say, socially. Mm-hmm. So that is a difference in our our styles for sure. And I'm the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. I go into every situation and assume that it's going to be awesome. And if it turns out mm-hmm. not to be, I just adjust. <laughs> that I think that's what makes me think you're an EO. Um, yes, I abbreviate personality facets um, or factors because the high extroversion, high openness. When you look at personalities, if you were to line up a hundred people, they are the most optimistic forward thinking people in the world. Um, which, so it is interesting to me how well you all gel because that's typically not the autistic person. (laughs) Like we're, we're maybe on the other side of the spectrum often, not always, but I think that doing some of these events together that we do and then having that 30 days, 30 days, I don't want to travel with anybody. I'm just going to be quite honest. Like I don't want to travel with my wife for 30 days. I don't want to travel with anyone by like halfway through. I was just like, Oh my God, I am so done. But it gives you a good glimpse into someone who is very extroverted and optimistic because I think some people in society can also misinterpret that as like, this doesn't feel real. This doesn't feel genuine. This feels really artificial. How can Mm -hmm. you put this face on every day? I got to see for 30 days that this is just, every day. And I thought to myself, this is wild, like that someone can move through the world optimistic all the time. I cannot do that. I feel like I'm optimistic 3% of my life and that might be generous. So it's just, it was just a very interesting experience. I really wish we would have documented more of it, either via writing or video to give different perspectives into the different neurotypes in terms of moving through the world and traveling and experiencing all of these places and transitions and sensory overload and stimulation and everything that went into those 30 days because it was so vastly different. Like if you could imagine Jennifer in Italy opening her window, seeing the mountains and like I imagine there were like bluebirds singing and all sorts of stuff. When I opened my window, my view was of old Italian men arguing with each other every morning. Like we had very different experiences in every sense of the world. And I almost feel like that is like a good glimpse into actual inner world and inner working. Well, Although, and I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just gonna, go ahead. No, you. I was just going to clarify. Is that because your perception of what your eye gravitated toward was different or because you actually had different? We actually had very different uh locations in the hotel we were staying okay. at 
Okay. And she had a really beautiful view. Like I imagine if I looked at it every day, I also would have been more happy than the view I had, which was just an alleyway and a coffee shop. And these two old Italian guys every morning arguing with each other in Italian about who knows what. And I would open it not having slept the day before or night before and just be like, oh my God. And she would come in and be like, did you see this like amazing image that I have? And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> Do you want to know what I would have honestly, my, my initial thoughts, if I would have opened the window and saw two little Italian men's arguing on the street, I would have been like, this is freaking awesome. I wonder what they're arguing about. I would have made up a whole story in my head and it would have been really good. Like, mm -hmm. and I would have been like, can you guys believe I got to see these two people having this argument wow. in Italian and their hands were going and like, my interpretation of my of our realities, we really literally do walk through the world in very different ways. Mm -hmm. And it's so freaking fascinating. I mm -hmm. think it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's a good ending point. And I'm ending yeah. it even without doing it awkwardly because I have a meeting in seven minutes. Okay. So. okay. Can I ask one final question? I want to start asking people this. Yeah. Um, when I say it's raining cats and dogs outside, what do you see in your mind? Um, I just see that it's raining hard. Like you see hard rain. I just hard raid. Uh-huh. Hard raid with like puddles in the street. Spouse says too. Patrick, what do you see? I think I also see hard rain. Wait. Oh, you're not autistic. <laughs> <laughs> this whole thing is a farce. <laughs> Sorry to be the one to tell you this, Patrick. You're out. I'm glad to hear it on air just like this too. That's perfect. Yeah. You <laughs> see hard rain? I see cats and dogs like coming down and umbrellas and they're popping off of umbrellas. And that I sounds know... horrifying. That's <laughs> right. It's a terrible. I know that people mean it's raining, but what comes in my mind are cats and dogs coming down. <clears throat> Patrick, I actually got this from Joel Schwartz, who's in a consult I did with him. He was he was saying how autistic people are visual processors. So often we'll see that. And I was like, wait, what? Not everyone sees cats and dogs. So I asked my spouse. He was like, I see rain. And I was like, what do you mean you see rain? But Well, I guess I failed the test. And you, you uh, failed. life is a lie. But Jennifer yeah, passed. Jennifer passed the holistic test. <laughs> I do see most and interpret most things visually. I will say that. But <laughs> I don't know. It, we live in a temperate rainforest in Asheville. It rains all the damn time. And I'm so sick of the rain. And that's all we see. Um, but yeah, that's actually a very funny question. All right, we got to wrap up. Sorry, y'all. Okay. Uh, this has been fun. Jennifer, thank you so much. Um, this is a really good conversation. And I'm glad we're doing this series. I, I would like to do it with more people, Megan, if um, we can start figuring out that, that process yeah. for sure. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me on. I've totally enjoyed my afternoon with you too. I'm about to see you again in like an hour. So yeah, I know. <laughs> and um, I am probably happy about it and you may feel some type of way but we'll show up anyhow <laughs> uh, okay well um, wishing you both an awkward goodbye because I hear that's your thing that's that's Sorry. me trying to end this episode and Megan will sometimes be like are you trying to transition yes I'm trying to transition um all right. So thank you to everyone who is listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. New episodes are out every single Friday on all major channels and YouTube. Like, download, subscribe, and share. Goodbye. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. 
From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.